Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Matthias Novak. Based in Zeist in the Netherlands, Matthias is an author, public speaker, and a software developer, and a trainer and a consultant. You can follow him on Twitter at Matthias Novak and check out his website at MatthiasNovak.nl. Matthias is the author of a number of LeanPub books, including PHP for the Web, Learn PHP Without a Framework, Rector, The Power of Automated Refactoring, which he co-authored with Thomas Fotruba, and most recently, Recipes for Decoupling. In Recipes for Decoupling, Matthias discusses software design principles and practices you can use to help you future-proof your code to better endure the inevitable changes in any dependencies you rely on and that are subject to inevitable change or obsolescence. In this interview, we're going to talk about Matthias' background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub. So thank you very much, Matthias, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Of course. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, this is the part where uh, regular listeners will know that I normally ask someone for their origin story, um, uh, but we've already gone over that. Um, nine years ago, when Matthias wow. was first on the podcast, I know, yeah, in uh, in 2013, wow, wow, indeed. Um, uh, that episode was was published in January 2020, or sorry, 2014. Um, right. So it's been a long time. So I mean, although you know it's not your entire origin story, you know, nine years is a long time. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a summary of what you've been up to in in all that time yeah that's nice it, it, it's nice to to go back to that year uh, and, and think about how it went back then uh, because um yeah i, I just had a, a regular job i'd say as a programmer uh, and and i somehow felt like i wanted to do something different uh, and and to write uh, about what i did uh, so i started blogging and then yeah like in in 20 i guess 14 then uh, was the, the year that uh, a year with symphony was published uh, the, the first book on LeanPub. Um, I, I took the advice. Uh, well, he didn't really personally give me the advice, but um, uh, Chris Hartjes, who's also uh, publishing on LeanPub, uh, it was like an example. So uh, it looked like uh, he was doing a great job with that. And I, I thought it would be a nice platform to, uh, to start writing. And I, I just never stopped writing. I think that's um, uh, every year or so, um, I feel like something else has to be written and has to be published. And so I do that, um, and, and LeanPub is still, uh, I think, a great platform for that um, has evolved uh, in several ways, but uh, has also um, been quite true to the, the original idea, like being able to uh, publish a book in a very lean way, so very easy uh, to do and uh, easy to make quick updates. Uh, so that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, uh, it's sometimes just like, uh, here is something that might be interesting and um, well next week I'll publish something else that also is interesting and then together it becomes um, a book <laughs> so it, it's a good match uh, uh, after all these years yeah it's great to hear that it's still a good match and so and so you 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 uh, beginning, beginning with that a year with symphony book you then started in this career as a you know public speaker and consultant and things like that and you said you said that back then um, you were working as sort of a normal job but you eventually mm -hmm. went independent. Around what time was did you make that uh, big leap? Um, I think within a year after the, the book uh, arrived. So um, yeah, I, I really started to look for uh, independent jobs. Um, there was one year where, where I still had um, like a, a, a job as an employee at the company, but I, I soon realized that I really want to be independent, um, not to stand for any kind of... Uh, business in particular, but uh, to be in between businesses and uh, help everybody where uh, where possible, um, or maybe not everybody, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, to, to do different jobs in different places uh, and, and not for a very long time. 
Although, yeah, I, I don't want to be uh, anywhere for, for too short a period of time. I just wanted to know what's going on uh, and really invest uh, some time and energy there um, and, and hopefully do something useful. And this could be many things. So um, I have done a lot of programming uh, in, in the meantime, but also uh, indeed like the training part, um, the, the consulting part. Um, yeah, and, and between jobs, uh, doing the public speaking as well. Although I must say, like since the pandemic, uh, indeed, that, that a lot has changed. And um, so not as many conferences as back then, uh, not as many uh, flights uh, through Europe. And um, yeah, much more uh, like mostly remote, sometimes meetups uh, still, but uh, a lot less um, physical contact, I guess, between uh, developers. And yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you specifically about how the um, about how the pandemic affected what you do. But um, before before we get there, I'd like to get um, get into a little bit of the details because a lot of a lot of our listeners are people who who you know I mean it's partly because LeanPub is a self publishing platform, so people who are interested in that part of what we do um, yeah. are sort of interested. They typically have a, like a little bit of an independent streak um, mm -hmm. uh, and a, a desire to be a bit more autonomous, maybe than you might be under other circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so when you made when you made this leap to sort of like you know leave a kind of regular job. Let's say, let's say, for example, with consulting, how do you go about, I mean, then you've learned, you've learned over the years, but how, how did you go about finding clients initially? And how do you go about it now? Do they, since you've write a, since you've written and published so much, for example, do they now just come to you? Or do you have to go out fishing? Yeah. Not very often. Um, so uh, I, I rarely get any emails from recruit, recruiters or something like just out of the blue companies asking for help uh, or, or uh, offering me a job or anything. So I, I'm always a bit surprised about that um, because it seems to come with uh, like a public profile where yeah, people just jump on you. Uh, on the other hand, I'm quite happy because um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't like to answer everybody to say no or something uh, or, or actually to look into every bit uh, that's going on and, and decide if, uh, if, if something should be done there. Uh, but I do have, um, like most of the time, it's, it's, a, it's a really personal um, uh, moment where uh, a friend or someone I already know or have worked with uh, comes with some new assignment that, uh, that might be something for me. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy that this is the way um, it, it mostly works. Yeah. And for those who don't know, what would what would an example of an assignment be? Would it be that um, uh, you know someone at this company is adopting a new framework, um, and mm -hmm. I know I know I know this guy Matthias who knows all about that. Should I bring him in? Mm -hmm. Is that is that the kind of thing? Yeah. So um, my topic then is is mostly about um, architecture, like the bigger picture for applications, how to design them well uh, and, and, and keep things maintainable uh, in the long run. Uh, but also, like, how do you work on uh, making a new feature, uh, like sometimes a bigger project? How do we do that even? Uh, how can we work better together as a team, um, work together even on the same feature, uh, which is, has become known as, as pair programming or sometimes mob programming? Um, and, and that's one thing that I, I really like as well. Um, working with legacy code is, uh, is one of my favorite topics and making something better of that uh, gradually and safely and yeah. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about, about architecture and about um, legacy code and things like that, for sure. Um, right. uh, on, a, on, a, on a bit of a higher level, though, um, I mean, I've, I've asked this question of a number of people on the podcast before, but I think a lot of people might be surprised to, to, to hear about that, you know, programming teams need to have, or it can be advantageous to bring in an outside consultant, right? It would, you know, mm -hmm. the, the ordinary question would be, well, why, why can't the team handle, handle all of that themselves? Why can't they just learn pair right. programming? Or why can't they just 
read a book mm-hmm. on on software architecture, and then I'll just make a decision. What 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 what's the sort of structural kind of uh, mm-hmm. momentum behind the the usefulness of bringing in an outside consultant for a team? Right. Yeah. It, it's maybe hard to say about my part in that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the way I think it it, it usually happens uh, works is that. Um, uh, there are some some things already going on in in a team. Uh, there is a need to uh, to change something, but it's really hard within uh, the established uh, structure. Uh, and sometimes even just um, well, because there are forces in the company that that prevent change, uh, and 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 sometimes not like it's not on purpose, but it's it's just the way it is. Uh, and and it can help if somebody comes in from the outside and starts fresh on a, on in, in a new way. Um, and maybe introduces things in a in a way that it's it's like less um, uh, less big of a change. So just small things you can do while you're working on, um, yeah, like your existing work, the, the the issues that you would normally pick up, and do do it in a slightly better way. Sometimes that's already uh, very helpful uh, because all those those little changes uh, they uh, they become the bigger change in the end. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm always. Um, uh, there for a limited time. So I'm, I'm not really sure what happens afterwards, uh, but I'm lucky that most of my clients uh, are, are companies that, that I speak with uh, also a couple of months later, a couple of years later even. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the, this is, this isn't so much in the programming world, but often in the, the world of consultants, it's kind of like, um, I've heard stories and been part of processes where there's some kind of resistance coming from some kind of direction somewhere. And if right. you can just attribute the change to an external source uh you can get away yeah. with things that you might not be able to get that's away right. with if you just try to do them just directly yeah it's very helpful for the team that that's already working there uh, to be able to say oh but uh, Matthias said it and uh, let's do it like like he said it uh, because well we we, uh, we are paying him for that uh, uh, although i really don't want to be the person that uh, just says uh, what to do uh, and and usually i i look for the things that everybody already knows and already wants uh, and sort of amplify that um, maybe just by talking to a few different people than they are talking to already uh, or by providing them with additional arguments uh, for like to make that uh, discussion work. And I imagine in uh, the, the olden days um, when you got started in the, in the mid, mid 2010s, um, a lot of basically probably everything was probably in person, right? Where you, you'd fly or, or, mm-hmm. or what have you and you'd, you'd go to meet these teams. Yeah, yeah. and, and that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but but recently, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think yeah again that that pandemic right that changed everything. Uh, in, in in the beginning, um, nothing came like no no company came to ask can you come over and fly over here and, and work together with us. It was mostly already uh, remote from the start. Uh, just to, like mostly the training programs uh, were, I, I immediately started offering them uh, as remote programs as well which worked really well. Uh, so I still reached those companies, but I didn't go there. And well, in part, I miss it uh, because it's always a lot of fun to be there in a different city and uh, find my way there, um, meet th- these people who are very much alike. Uh, like we are all uh, indeed like the technical folks. It's like, uh, yeah, we all uh, look the same and talk about the same things. And it's it's just nice to uh, to, to be with, with similar people, but in a different place. Uh, but yeah, I'm also slightly worried about, um, well, the environment. That's one thing that uh, has become clear that, you know, uh, all the, um, the flying might not be as good as, uh, uh, yeah, as we thought it could be. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, it, it has uh, amazing benefits 
but um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I wouldn't want to do it that much uh, anymore. Yeah, it's funny. I'd, I'd like to ask you specifically about how, you know, this sort of the pandemic affected you where, where you live in the Netherlands, but um, just to share mm -hmm. a personal story about transportation and the pandemic. Um, yeah. uh, I don't have, I don't have a car and, um, you know, I work from home. Uh -huh. um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I went nine months without straight, without getting on or in any form of conveyance, uh -huh. like no bicycle, no skateboard, no car, okay. <laughs> you know, no plane. And then, and then I went to visit a friend and his family for Thanksgiving, uh, Canadian Thanksgiving. And I, mm -hmm. I, in one, within the course of two hours, got on a seaplane, a taxi and a ferry. Um, wow. So I, I, you know, <laughs> land, sea, and air, um, all within one, one sort of brief right. moment. Uh, but, but it was, it was, I mean, you know, as, as isolating and, and sad as, mm -hmm. as, as so many features of it were, um, I think, you know, just on, you know, on, on a certain level of everybody kind of had an opportunity to kind of assess how they lived their day-to-day -day lives and whether they needed mm -hmm. to live the way that they were. And so, you know, there are, you know, I'm not trying to focus on some of the positive things here. So there are a lot of people who will never buy a loaf of bread again because they learned how to make it. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> and that's nice, you know, uh, and there are a lot yeah. of people who maybe realized like, um, you know, I can, I can walk to the grocery store, uh, mm -hmm. get a backpack, you know, I don't, I don't need to necessarily drive my car everywhere yeah. to do everything all the time and things like that. And, um, and uh, just on a very personal note, people finally learned the correct distance to stand apart from each other. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not distancing it's called politeness um yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but in any case so so uh, yeah what was it what was it like for you spe specifically where you live and, and given the kind of work that you do uh what how did yeah. how did it affect you at the beginning and, and what's it like now right yeah yeah so it's very weird to get to get closer together now that it's possible uh, and 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 i agree that it feels like okay maybe uh, maybe it's better uh, not to be that close uh, sometimes, but um, uh, on the other hand, I think that's that's one of the things where where it sometimes goes wrong for me personally is that um, yeah I've I've basically forgot about all the options uh, in a way like closing everything down and and staying at home um, and and canceling so many things it feels like uh, it's really hard sometimes to get back into the the, the habit of going somewhere uh, going to the theater sometimes even. Um, that feels like it's a, it's a big thing, and uh, I, I wouldn't like it like it to feel like that. <laughs> so it's just just a shame because it's uh, it can be so much fun uh, also to be around people. And um, yeah, recently I started uh, uh, playing the violin again uh, in an orchestra, uh, which had oh. also been uh, yeah like um, I, I used to do this, uh, but um, yeah, it, it it took a lot of effort to to go go back there. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know what you, I know what you mean. Um, I had a bit of a kind of misanthropic moment the first time I got on a flight after having not been on one, not the seaplane one, but a kind of proper flight where I was in the airport and there was this guy who started whistling. Oh. And I'm like, you asshole. There's, there's other people around, you know, we, we can't not hear your nonsense. And then there was someone talking, all these mundane things and someone talking loud on a phone and I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like it's just like no no this is i mean get over yourself you know like people shouldn't do those things by the way but but at the same time yeah, yeah, like yeah. get over yourself this is part of the part of living with other people is they're gonna fart and they're exactly. gonna they're gonna be a bit yes. nonsense and and stuff like that and you can you kind of yeah. like become strange again and maybe it can be a little bit difficult to get reused to it but um in in, in your in your city where you lived was there a was there ever like a kind of like you can't leave your house kind of lockdown um no not really no um 
I, I don't feel like like that ever happened. Um, okay. Did did people start wearing masks outside and things like that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I, and I think the the worst things were uh, like um, being infected. Stay home. Stay stay really at home and uh, making arrangements. Like, uh, uh, but it's 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 funny because within our family, like half of us got infected and the other other half not. So they could still do everything. And um, yeah, that that would normally have been. Uh, they would also normally like earlier in the in the pandemic they would have to to stay at home as well. But the rules had already changed, so they could could go out. Um, and and that would really, uh, I, I guess, it would be really bad if you really had to stay home <laughs> all the time. Uh, the house would be would be too small, I guess. Uh, and and did um, how did things change for you professionally? So you you mentioned it a little bit already, but did your did your mm -hmm. did the amount of work you had go down or or did it go up? I would say up, yeah, uh, mostly because of the um, the training requests, uh, a lot of them remote, and yeah, it's interesting because before that, uh, nothing was remote uh, on uh, for for the trainings, um, but it makes so much sense uh, because it's it's just generally very expensive to to go somewhere. Uh, it takes a lot of time. Uh, we have the, the the plane ticket and and anything else that that needs to be covered, uh, uh, hotel nights uh, before and after the the training. Um, and the training day itself, so it's it's almost like it's very inefficient for everybody, uh, and and I'm really happy that it has become more of a standard uh, way of doing this, uh, and it, it has remained like that. So it, it, people are still uh, sending me emails for remote training. It, it, that that still makes a lot of sense. Uh, although I also know that um, uh, being in a call and and for more than a couple of hours, it's it's really heavy uh, for everyone involved. So uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm still struggling a bit with that. Uh, mostly limiting the time to uh, three, three and a half hours with uh, every hour uh, a break. You know, that's really important uh, to step away sometime. Uh, and and yeah, the afternoon should not be uh, spent behind the computer. <laughs> so it's a it's a different way of doing it. So it, it now takes two mornings, for instance, instead of one uh, entire day. But it used to be very efficient, uh, like fly there, uh, do the training, fly home, and, and that's it. Now it's more easygoing. Uh, it's really uh, important. Yeah, that's, that's actually really, really fascinating. Um, I've interviewed a few people who've sort of had, had to sort of learn new ways of doing things. Um, there was this one, one woman in particular who worked for HashiCorp. She and uh, her co-author published a book about digital first events. So her job, where, where there's this, this, uh -huh. comp this company that's fully remote and always has been, and they would have mm -hmm. these, these big events every year or maybe, maybe even more than one, but they were like truly big events, the kind where you mm -hmm. book like a big venue a couple of years in advance and stuff like that and then boom COVID happened and all their plans collapsed and they had to learn how right. to do how to do things digitally right and there are these things that like like you talk about like people you learn that like some what's too long you know what I mean for people mm -hmm. to just be in one session yeah. um yeah. uh you know she she started she they learned that to add sort of little bits of entertainment here and there in between in mm -hmm. between things was was very useful um yeah. yeah but definitely sort of realizing that like you know the standing or sitting watching a video and listening to someone talk you know in front of a computer is just very different from being sitting in a conference hall or in a meeting room very different and and even though uh, in a physical space you can still look at your phone or, or take out your laptop or something but if you are behind your computer it's really hard to not just uh, alt up to a different thing and uh, look at it and uh, you can see it uh, happen of course uh, when everybody has a camera on it's like there, there is this gaze at some point in everybody's eyes, <laughs> and yeah, that's that's my clue that uh, something needs to change. Like we need to do with something something different, or uh, or have a break, or yeah, you know that. Uh...
I saw when I was researching for this interview, I, I saw um, that you did a, a talk with, um, I think a meetup group called DDD, Domain Driven Design Africa, um, for example. And oh, yeah. I think yeah. that was that was during the pandemic. And um, I, I was just curious if that kind of thing, kind of virtual meetup is something that you've seen an, an uptick in the last couple of years as yeah. well. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, in the Netherlands, we had, uh, it, it was quite interesting, uh, something about 10 different user groups for, for PHP. Uh, every city had one. And um, I, I think a lot of them have disappeared. But on the other hand, the, the ones that are still there, they are now uh, like at, at least hybrid uh, doing remote and uh, um, in some in some office somewhere. Uh, and, and anybody can join from anywhere around the world. So that's, uh, that's very cool, I think. Uh, um, sometimes you would see a meetup being scheduled with a talk that is really interesting, but you can't go there. And now, yeah, you can, you can just watch. Uh, you mentioned PHP, uh, which gave me a great opportunity to segue into the next part of the interview. Where we'll talk a little bit yeah, about, yeah. about your, the books that you've written in, in, in the past and uh, the kind of work mm -hmm. that you do as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, well, you mentioned legacy code and software architecture, and we'll talk about both those things. Mm -hmm. But a big area of, of focus for you has been PHP. Um, yeah. So I was wondering, for, imagine you're, someone's listening to this and they have no idea what that is. Uh, can mm -hmm. you explain for a moment what, what PHP is? Right. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, PHP. Well, I should say, has become a very serious language that is used for many web applications, uh, many big ones. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but uh, it seems that the internet runs on, on PHP, <laughs> or at least we like to believe that. Uh, and we have some great tools for that, um, uh, some, some very good frameworks, uh, also some very good supporting tools for, um, uh, for writing maintainable code, uh, like uh, static analysis tools. They, they have become very big uh, recently, or I would say maybe even in the last couple of years. Uh, so um, any kind of issue that you might run into when you deploy an application, you can already figure them out uh, just when you're still working on the code and you will get these all of these errors and warnings and things. Um, but also, um, and this is something I've been writing about as well, uh, you mentioned the, the rector book, uh, we have automated refactoring tools and that's a very, very powerful uh, thing for, for PHP that has, has become or is still becoming more popular in, in the past few years. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, these questions of popularity and, you know, yeah. PHP or the web runs on PHP. So for those, yeah, so, yeah. so PHP yeah. is a programming language that's used by people to, to you know, make stuff you'll interact with on your computer, mm -hmm. on, on, on the internet, as it were, um, uh, yeah. uh, in your yeah. browser and stuff like that. Um, and um, it's been around for a long time, which is sort of mm -hmm. a very important feature. And one of the, one of, well, one of the features of it having been around for a long time is that there are lots of kind of older or, or older yeah sites and things like that that were made by people who maybe were just kind of throwing things together um yeah, you know and yeah. and you know without without having sort of maybe it was very a lot of stuff in the early days was very on the fly and phd was around during what we'll put in quotes you know the the early days uh, right. but you, but you said it's become so but so how have things changed in the last nine years uh mm -hmm. around php maybe if you could talk a little bit about that yeah yeah, but I, I, think, I think that's interesting. And uh, I also feel like, okay, I, I have to defend myself here, uh, which is also a very interesting thing uh, happening all the time, uh, in particular with books. Um, I've had this, um, I've had, well, two books published by like more traditional publishers, uh, A-Press, uh, which was totally open to PHP books. 
but I had um, some discussions with Manning, uh, and yeah, they really didn't want me to write a PHP book because of this, these issues, right? Um, so if you say it, it uses PHP uh, code samples, then it's like, okay, yeah, leave it. Uh, <laughs> like the, the bigger developer community is not interested in that. Um, and what I think is interesting is that um, uh, back then in, in 2014, uh, there were a lot of um, PHP developers who were suddenly taking PHP much more seriously than had been done before. Um, and this resulted in a lot of uh, interesting uh, developments. Like um, we have an excellent package manager since about that year, um, which allows you to install, well, packages in a very safe way. So with locked versions and everything. Uh, and that, that has uh, opened the door for a lot of interesting developments. Um, and, and some packages have been really become very important. And it's, it has taken a different route than, uh, for instance, the, the, the JavaScript uh, package uh, manager stuff, where it's like really small packages and like just functions here and there. Uh, but with PHP, you always get these very powerful packages uh, and frameworks as well. Um, and I think they, they have taken a lot of inspiration from other languages that have, have become have come a, a very long way uh, to develop very good frameworks. So they picked some some of the good stuff from these frameworks and, and these other languages and put it into their own language uh, to the point that um, that maybe you could say that uh, like PHP being the, the flexible language uh, and everything is possible. Um, you can easily make mistakes, but the, the tools are so very powerful right now. That um, yeah, that there is really no need to be uh, like defending the language choice uh, anymore today. <laughs> uh, just um, of course uh, steer away from maybe the bad parts or the yeah like the. I, I don't think there are any dangerous parts at this moment, like back then maybe, but um, yeah, everything is covered for you. And so on, on that note, yeah, thank you very much for sharing that really great explanation and for and for hinting at at the sort of controversies that can sometimes mm -hmm. surround, you know, what what yeah. type of language yeah. are you coding in and stuff like that for people who are listening right. who might not know, you know, just just like in any other, just like in any profession, there are trends and things that are popular and things that are unpopular and things where people yeah. get very, you know, people can get very emotional about like styles of handwriting if you're in if uh -huh. you're in a certain kind of world and just imagine how how much more heated it might get if you know, a typo yeah. made a program break or something like that. Um, uh, exactly. And, and, and yeah. you know, people can get very, very, uh, very sensitive about things like that. Um, uh, and so on, on that note, let's maybe move on to talk a little bit more specifically about what legacy code is. So you write a lot mm -hmm. about legacy code. What What is legacy code? Mm -hmm. um, different definitions are there. Uh, we could talk about um, code that um, has no tests. This has become, this is Michael Feather's uh, definition. Um, yeah, like people may say that uh, yesterday's code is, is legacy code in the sense that, well, we, we may not like it that much as we did it yesterday when we wrote it and it was all great. Uh, now, when we look at it again, it's like, yeah, not, not that great anymore. So we feel like we, we want to improve it. Um, and yeah, if, if you multiply this, then you have, uh, and also look back longer than, than a day or a week or a month, then you end up with um, just a, a a big project like thousands of lines of code that uh, are not up to your current standards and yeah what to do with that uh, can you improve it somehow or uh, should you rewrite it entirely um, yeah like basically throw it away and, and make something new that's really um, really difficult uh, it's a difficult question to answer anyway um, like I've, I've been part of several projects that were just 
rewriting entire projects and they were successful with that. Uh, and somewhere, yeah, it was just what it was. And this is just our reality. We have to deal with the mess and uh, we can do little things, but not that much because it will be, it's very easy to make it unstable. Yeah, so, 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 so one, I mean, one definition is just old code. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think another, another definition is code someone else wrote. Um, yeah, uh, exactly. and, 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 and it's, it's sort of funny, but sometimes that someone else can be you from five years ago. And you're like, I have no yeah. idea what, what I was thinking. Um, That's right. yeah. uh, uh, and, um, and so there's this sort of decision that people can often make. So you can maybe think about it. One, one can maybe think about it from the decision, from the perspective of, let's say you're a, you're a, an MBA manager. Uh, you don't know the first thing about, about coding, but you understand everything else about the business. And you're sitting mm -hmm. on top of something that's starting to break down that yeah. isn't working anymore. You're maybe even having a difficult time recruiting because because you know the mm -hmm. new, new programmers because they ask what they'd be working on and they go oh my god i don't yeah. want to work on that and so you've got this you're this manager you've got a budget you've got things that are kind of working mm -hmm. and you realize at some point look we're just gonna like just to stay where we are mm -hmm. in terms of functionality we're actually going to have to do a lot of work and that can mean um rewriting which you mentioned which is mm. one can think of that just what it sounds like starting over basically yeah um yeah. or you can refactor um mm. and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what refactoring is mm -hmm. yeah um that's another definition so we we uh, i think it's uh, martin fowler uh we want to improve the structure of the code without changing its behavior uh, because structure is indeed it's about mess the code being a mess and you feel like yeah the this should be cleaned up. Uh, but we don't want to break existing features because people are relying on it uh, for it to work like this. And, and so, yeah, we, we can just clean up, but preserve, preserving existing behavior. And that's already a very hard thing to do because the, the system may have behaviors that um, we don't know about as developers. So uh, we, we make this change here to clean it up, and then we break something for a particular user uh, that was relying on this feature to work. Uh, in a particular way, yeah, and and that and that brings with it all kinds of decisions. And we, we we've used the word architecture a couple of times already, um, but mm -hmm. you know you can you can come in and go, okay, you know what are we going to do to maintain the functionality, but maybe change the architecture of the yeah. code? Uh, what what would it, can you give us maybe an example of, of what what mm -hmm. that would be like? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if, maybe if you can think of an example of sort of this this kind of thing in practice, where it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna try and keep the functionality, but I'm gonna make some. Yeah sort of structural changes to the code? What would an example of that, that be? Um, yeah, like this is related to, to the topic of my latest book as well, uh, like trying to decouple from things that um, are, are dangerous to couple to. Uh, so this is indeed about structure. Um, if you pick a framework or a particular library that does something useful for you, uh, but you get too intimate with it, you, you are using it's uh, maybe too many parts uh, that, that it offers. Even though it's it's nice today, uh, in, in a couple of years it's outdated and you you don't you no longer want that. Um, so one way is to say uh, I can use this framework in this part of the code base, but in this other part uh, I, I'm I'm not letting it happen. So there we focus on just code that um, yeah we can design it in any way we like, but yeah it's not coupled to a particular tool. Uh, so yeah. that's that's one example. Okay. Yeah. No. This, so this is very interesting, actually. Yeah. So, like, so, so moving on to your latest book, recipes for decoupling. Um, so, uh, let me see if I can try and try and sort of explain this. Um, so, um, let's say you're developing a, a website, and uh, it's going to do. I don't know. Let's say it's a it's it's a it's a calendar. 
Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be a cool calendar uh, kind of thing that helps people deal with time zones and stuff like that. And um, one, one thing this website might do that you're building or this app, for example, that, that might, people might be able to install on their phone or something like that is um, send emails. And uh, if your code that you write is using a specific email service, that's an example of coupling, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and so if, 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 for example, that email service that you rely on changes, cause it's got programmers working on it and it's got, mm -hmm. it's got things that it depends on and right. stuff like that. If it changes, yeah. then all of a sudden you might wake up one morning and everybody's yeah. jump, all your users are jumping up and down going, I'm not getting my emails anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you, if you, if you haven't taken into account in the way you coded it, for example, if mm -hmm. there's something specific in your code, that's unique to the thing that you were using, mm -hmm. then you're screwed. Um, but, but if you coded your own thing at a level of abstraction appropriately with decoupling, yeah. right, then, then you could just switch to another service like that. Right. That ideally, yes. Um, one example is that um, if you send emails in 10 different places in your code base and you have this, uh, well, 10 or 20 line uh, thing uh, that, that you copy all the time, every time you want to send an email, um, that's, it's a very clear example of, well, something badly designed. Because indeed, if you have to do something about the, that email sending part where uh, you need to configure it in a different way because the service changed or it needs to go to a different uh, web address or something, then uh, yeah, you have to change it in all these places. So of course, the first step is to find a single place in the code where we can do that. Uh, and then maybe the next part is that, yeah, if this happens, if we really have to switch very quickly, we can do that. Uh, without changing the entire code base. And um, I, I gather it's also a very important principle for, for testing as well, um, mm -hmm. which is something we haven't spoken about yet, but there's something called test-driven yeah. development, which actually Chris Hartges yeah. has written about, who you mentioned earlier, the grumpy programmer. Um, but uh, exactly, yeah. but, um, but uh, if, for example, like, well, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about test-driven development in a moment, but like one thing you can do when you're um, coding an application is writing mm -hmm. tests, automated tests in there. Um, so yeah. that you sort of like, just, just on your computer, you can just sort of run the program and you can test something and, mm -hmm. and, and you, you can you say run the program and then these automated tests can happen and they can you know flash red lights at you basically saying, uh oh, right. th this is broken. Um, yeah. But what you don't want is to have to actually, like for example, with this example we were using, you don't wanna have to actually mm -hmm. send a real email um, uh -huh. in order to test. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so you'd, yeah. have, you'd have some kind of abstraction. Oh, this is an email. And then you'd have mm -hmm. something set up that sort of goes, oh, I can, I can check to see that the, the category of email kind of activity is working yeah. properly. That's right. Yeah. And so this is, uh, but I mean, everything is, is related always with, with these topics because uh, like legacy code, uh, um, uh, like code that somebody else wrote, something like that. Um, and, but what is usually bad about it is that that person knew how it was supposed to work. And they probably didn't specify that. Uh, so that they just wrote the code and, and clicked on something in the browser and saw it happen. And we're like, okay, this, this works. So it can be released. But uh, years later, you want to go back and still see like what was the purpose of this code uh, because you want to, again, clean it up. Um, and for this, you can also use the tests to specify what is the expected behavior. Uh, and, and yeah, what you'd really like is that um, back then this person would have written the test for you instead of you having to figure it out and maybe write some tests after the fact or 
Uh, yeah, no, this is this is actually really a really interesting example um, uh, of of how things can be these different sort mm -hmm. of software principles can be interconnected, right? So, for example, um, you can imagine so you know software code is writing; it's it's a bunch of instructions that are written down, basically. Mm -hmm. And if you if you if you're going to be examining some code, you open up a, a text editor and and you look at some letters and numbers and you know spaces mm -hmm. and new lines and things like that, and you sort of like, huh, what's this? And one way of uh, of doing it is to have no explanations of anything that's going on whatsoever and just have someone have to figure out, oh yeah, I know this, this programming yeah. language and like, let me see, oh, I see what this is. And I look, look around and I can see what this, this little thing I'm looking at is doing. Another mm -hmm. thing you could do is have the code, the instructions that are to send an email and you can write above the following code <laughs> is, mm -hmm. is, was written in order to send emails. Right. right. And so that now if someone comes in, you know, new to the project, they can go, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I know this is, this is, this is the yeah. part where it's sending the email. Well, this, all of a sudden, this can make it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing you can do is actually write a test there, an automated test. And so any, so you, that ought, the, the test that you write is itself a way of saying, this is going to be sent where this next part of the code is trying to send me, or this, the former part of yeah. the code is trying to send an email. So writing tests is a way of documenting at the same time about what a section of code is trying to do okay. um, yeah. but the, so that and that all sounds great well why doesn't everybody write these write these awesome tests every yeah. time every <laughs> time they're coding or why don't they just write out this next part of the code is to send an email and uh, the reason is that keystrokes take time uh, mm -hmm. basically and 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 they they can take your focus away for example like if you're really getting into the if you've built up a sort of stack in your head of yeah. sequences yeah. of steps stopping out of stepping out of it to explain what mm -hmm. you just did actually can kind of break the house yeah. of the mental house of cards um That's right yeah. Yeah. so uh if let's let's say for example you're brought in to bring it down to an example that you might face so let's mm -hmm. say you're brought in um as a consultant to a team and they're like we're thinking of moving to this test-driven development thing mm -hmm. where uh we we write as we as we develop our code we write mm -hmm. tests every step along the way uh yeah. But our manager doesn't want us to do that because then he doesn't hit the milestones that he's expecting to hit. Mm -hmm. What do you do to sort of convince the manager <laughs> that they should yeah. switch to test-driven development? If I knew the trick, then uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's hard to say. But um, you know, if, if you talk about this, uh, there are so many aspects to it. Uh, one is is the thing that you mentioned. Um, uh, you don't want to send actual emails when you're testing the email functionality because, yeah, that would maybe cost you money even, or it would be very slow. Uh, and, and well, where do you even send the emails to? Uh, I don't know, all these questions. Um, so you, you find something else to, um, to replace that and to make it a bit faster, a bit more uh, deterministic as well. Um, <clears throat> but if you don't write uh, tests, uh, um, like if you never write any tests, then you don't have that that feedback from the code. Like this is uh, badly designed code because it's it's hard to test. And if you have hard to test code, then you're very likely not going to do any testing anymore because it's such a, like it's 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 an amazing uh, amount of work <laughs> if you want to test untestable code, and it takes just a lot of time to. Uh, extract parts that are testable and then replace them with something uh, like um, those replacement objects that, that can do the thing uh, in the testing scenario for you. Um, but uh, start starting anywhere, um, what works for me is that um, if a team wants to pick up an issue, the first question should always be, how are we going to test this? 
and in some cases, it, it, indeed, it, it might uh, end up with a quick discussion and a, and a, a well, a simple answer. We cannot test this. The, it, it, it would just be too hard. But okay, at least we we define the um, the criteria for testing as like in the issue description itself. So we say, how can we test this, or how can someone else verify that this works? Uh, okay, go there, uh, click on this, and okay, that, that should it should look like that. But very often, it's there are more options. You, you you don't have to just rely on manual verification. You can actually write an automated test, uh, even if it if it's hard at first. Uh, and and this is another approach that uh, I do for legacy programming is uh, the Mikado method. So we always look for the simplest thing possible that we can do today to improve the situation a bit. And then for every new issue that we pick up, we uh, at least improve one part of it uh, uh, and, and make our lives a bit easier. Um, and in the end, this results in much more tests and we, we feel like it's easier to write tests. And when, when, it, when it becomes easier, we are also going to do it more often. Yeah, I'm looking at a blog post, a recent blog post of yours here um, on uh, moving uh -huh. forward with legacy code and the Mikado method. And right. uh, just, just to give people yeah. a, a bit of a sense, yeah, again, of, of the kind of training that you would do. So what, what is the Mikado method? Uh -huh. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Also, you say Mikado. I, I, I wasn't aware, oh. like, in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands, we say Mikado. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Well, don't, to... don't, don't go by my pronunciation of anything. <laughs> no, I, I was just interested. In, like, is it, it's a game. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if you have the game as well, where you have the sticks and you drop them on the table and you have to pick each stick one by one uh, and make sure that none of the other sticks move. I don't know. So if that's, uh, if that's something. Oh, that is something, but I forget the name. Um, that okay. is definitely something, yeah. The stick game, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, so this is um, uh, an approach that that um, that I do. So we uh, imagine like there there is this big goal. Um, for instance, we want to migrate to a, a different framework, which is uh, just a lot of work. Uh, so how can we do that? Um, and uh, well, Mikado is like we do the first thing that um, that uh, that we could try, like a very big thing sometimes even we just install the, ne the, the next framework um, and then we realize uh, it's not going to work because we don't have the right uh, language version like uh, it should be php 8 if we want to use that framework and we are on five so okay <laughs> there's a lot of work there um, and we write it down as a prerequisite so we know that before we can ever install the framework uh, we first have to upgrade the language uh, and that's something that uh, may take some time um, and yeah, like the next time we can, we have some time to pick up, uh, work on this issue. We, we do that. We just switch to a different language and we notice that, um, well, there are all kinds of errors, uh, that, that suddenly pop up and we write down all of those errors and one by one, uh, recognize that these are prerequisites. If we ever want to migrate to a new version, we need to fix those errors first because we can already anticipate, uh, the, the language switch. Uh, and, and so all the way down to the smallest thing that you can do um, to, to improve the situation. And finally, the, um, the switch to the, to the framework, it's, it's just a commit, maybe just a few lines of code. And there you go, <laughs> it's done. But for every step in the process, you end up with a better uh, code base anyway. Like the situation is, is much better today. Uh, and you don't have to wait until it's finally done and you can do this like big merge uh, into the, the main branch and deploy, because that's a very dangerous thing. Then uh, if you have this big, big bang release, um, you're never sure if everything is going to work uh, on that day. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're, you're the, the 
your fingers get very sweaty when you press enter on that right. um, or, or, <laughs> or you click a button. Um, uh, yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing that. That's, that's super interesting. I actually, I wanted to move on to the next part of the interview where we talk about um, your new, okay. your latest book specifically. Uh, so in recipes for decoupling, you talk about something called PHP Stan. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering if you could just sort of tell us about what, what that is and its history and then how, how you use it in your book, in your book. Yeah, uh, I think, well, PHP Stan is, uh, it stands for PHP Static Analysis. Uh, so it's a tool that you can run on your PHP code. Uh, it looks at the code, it doesn't uh, run the code, but it will uh, say that, um, yeah, you, you're calling a method that requires a string, but you pass an integer to it, for instance. Uh, that like just, just very low level things where, um, yeah, it can already predict that something will go wrong when you do this. Uh, and, and that's very useful because Usually there, there is so much code in your project. Uh, you make a change. You, you don't often realize uh, all the areas that it may have an impact on. Uh, and this tool can scan your entire code base and look for potential errors. And how, how does how does that work? I mean, how how can you how can it how can it how can it, it's not the program itself. So how can it know that something might be an error? Right. Yeah. So it, it really tries to understand your code. And the first step is uh, is loading each file. Uh, and then parsing it. So trying to um, recognize the structure. Uh, for this, it builds on top of uh, another library uh, called PHP Parser. So it, it can understand uh, the building blocks. So this is a class, and in this class, we find the number of functions. Uh, every function has a number of arguments uh, with their types. And yeah, PHP stand just goes by them like for each of these blocks uh, and, and interprets them. And also uh, figures out like what are the types of things that are happening here? Is it indeed a string type uh, value or an integer type? Um, and so yeah, it, it really does a lot of interpretation. And by doing so, it's it's becoming really smart. Uh, and like every day, it's it's becoming more smart. <laughs> uh, and and to the point that um, it's not just uh, possible to analyze code, but it's even possible to modify code. And that's that's where Rector and another tool. Uh, like builds on top of the static analysis part um, and it is able to transform code into like different structures. I've got a question about that in just a moment, but um, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> so the, the book I believe is, is marked as 20% done. Um, and I just mm -hmm. wanted to ask who's, who's, the, who's this book for? Who is the ideal reader for this, for this book? Ah, very good question. Yeah. So it's, it's anyone who has um, uh, experience with uh, frameworks. And I guess that many, many developers uh, have this experience. Um, mostly with like web MPC frameworks. So that there are more than just the ones that I know, of course, uh, and there are more than, than just PHP frameworks. But, model, um, model view controller, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, like most web applications have this kind of structure where uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to serve a browser request and, and like answer uh, with a response. Um, and all the work that happens in between is something that you can write some code for. But the framework tries to do a lot of things for you, um, uh, yeah, to save you some time usually. But uh, I also know that many developers have experienced some issues with that, uh, so they realize that they are becoming too dependent on parts of those uh, frameworks, and that it becomes really hard to uh, change anything at some point. Um, sometimes framework authors they come with a, a new version, uh, and like developers have to catch up with with those changes. Uh, like you have this entire migration guide, and you have to follow that. Uh, that's going to be just uh, a lot of work. So um, over the years, I've collected some uh, things that I do, basically patterns or recipes that um, that I apply to my code, 
uh, to make sure that I'm not too tightly coupled to these frameworks. Uh, and and yeah, that's this this book is a collection of those those the things that I do. <laughs> and um, you, you mentioned um, that uh, PHP Stan can even modify code. Um, and so just before we move on to the final part of the interview, where we talk about your you know your work as an author and and published and published author and things like that. So do you think that code is going to be writing code in the future and programmers are going to become obsolete just to put it in the, in the funniest, funniest way. Yeah. Uh, there, there's yeah, a very serious debate out there about like, are, are basically the, are the AIs going to be able to write code, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not really sure, but um, before we continue, just to get back to the, oh, the sure. PHP stand part. Sure. Um, sure. So PHP stand only analyzes the code and Rector can actually change it. So it's oh, a sorry. different tool. But it builds on top. Now, just just, uh, just yeah, no, no, no. That's an important distinction. Um, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, I mean, it, it, these are all possible because of like each other. The the, the tools they they amplify each other. Um, yeah, but about writing code, and I think uh, uh, yeah, Rector can can show us a bit about that. Uh, that um, if you want to migrate to, as an example, a different framework or a different style of programming. Uh, you can just do that. You can say, I want this kind of uh, approach to programming and run Rector and yeah, everything now follows the, the new standard. Uh, so that's that's very cool. I, I don't know about um, uh, AIs. Uh, I don't have any experience with that, although there are some some tools already available. Uh, but I feel like there is still a lot of work in like interpreting what is needed here. Uh, we need to talk and have lots of um, sessions, like understanding what are the needs of the users and uh, how does this business concept work? Uh, so I, I'm not really sure uh, how fast that that may happen. <laughs> Although I believe that yes, of course, that, that this this might become uh, closer one day. I I, I don't know. <laughs> oh well, thanks, Brent. No, that was a very broad, open question. I was just kind of being selfishly taking the opportunity to see if I could, I could yeah. get get an opinion <laughs> out of you. Um, uh, just moving. Yeah, no, it is. It's so fascinating. Um, just just moving on then to the uh, last part of the interview where you talk about your work as an author. Um, so you've you followed a sort of a very sort of interesting arc, um, the kind of arc we we love to see on LeanPub, where maybe LeanPub is the first place that someone publishes a book, and then maybe they publish another one, but then maybe they publish a book or books with some more conventional publishers, and then maybe they yeah. come back to LeanPub. Um, and so uh, you you started out sort of self-publishing, but then you, you did work with um, A Press and with with Manning as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just wondering if you could talk a moment comparing and contrasting the experience of being a mm -hmm. entirely independent self-published author versus working with you know a company right. that's going to have development editors and stuff like that. What's exactly what what yeah. are the what are the main compares and yeah. contrasts that you can come up with? Right. No, and I I think these are totally different things. Uh, and, and yeah, I always hope that it's clear also for the readers that, um, that it, it, there are different standards. And for Manning, for instance, the, 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 I really enjoyed working with them. And they had some very um, like high quality um, uh, reviews going on, uh, people really involved in, in the process as well. So they, they knew what was happening with the book and um, what it was about. And that's just great to be able to talk about uh, the book with someone and, and who is really knowledgeable on, on the topic. Um, and yeah, they, they have many people <laughs> like they, they can, you can just ask for, can, can, can you review this? And they just have people for that. It's, it's great. They can contact, uh, uh, some pool and everybody will just join and, um, have, have very valuable feedback. Uh, so what, what was very useful for me was, um, the broad range of feedback, uh, uh from them, um, like looking from different languages, uh, different, uh, experience levels, um, and also learning what they had in mind for uh, what is a good technical book. 
Um, so they, they really spent a lot of time also communicating that, uh, which was very interesting. Um, and yeah, I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, so I, back in the beginning, when I started with LeanPub, uh, like make my own book there, uh, it, there wasn't even a technical review going on um, uh, for, for some time. Uh, like sometime later, uh, a couple of books later, I, I asked uh, some people to provide a review because it really adds to the to the quality. Um, but uh, mostly, uh, yeah, I, yeah, it it really is different in that way. Like uh, the the um, with with the published book, uh, say with Manning, it's it's really a finished thing. Um, it's done. Uh, it has to be really good before it's it's going out. Uh, and with LeanPub, I still feel that I can change things and improve things and yeah, just do a, a re-release. Uh, and, and that's one of the great things because with Manning, I was constantly annoyed, for instance, that I could not make a change and it, it would just propagate to the <laughs> release version. Uh, like that would be very, very helpful. I, I recognize something or I, I change my mind about something and I want to change it and there you go. <laughs> and with LeanPub, of course, that's, that's possible. So um, yeah, I guess for the reader, it also must be a different experience where, um, you know, they get a book and it's maybe not even done <laughs> or yeah, never well, done. Yeah, I know it's so fascinating to think about it, you know, from both from both both sides of the equipment. Mm -hmm. Well, some like I guess all three sides, right? There's the authors, there's the publishers, and there's the readers, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, from the readers, I mean, this is actually reminding me of what I took to be a, a hilarious kind of profile of the CEO of Ford in in the New York Times that I read recently, uh -huh. um, where so basically. Tesla just did laps around the legacy auto industry in a number of different ways, right? And one of them was mm -hmm. the the over overnight software update, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you can just imagine heads explode. I mean, I'm going to be very patronizing about this. You can imagine heads exploding around a boardroom where it's like, uh -huh. "What the computer guys are beating us at cars now?" You know, and <laughs> yeah. um, and. Right. Uh, even after all these years and all these pressures and the humiliation of seeing Tesla worth 10 times as much. And, you know, these come of these companies almost collapsing mm -hmm. after the, the 2007 kind of, you know, the beginning of the great recession there and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, this, this, I know I'm getting, I'm, I'm making a point. I will make get to the point, uh -huh. but um, <laughs> uh, this guy was, this article was celebrating the CEO and the, the release of the F-150 lightning, their new electric truck. Um, mm -hmm. And he has, he, but even, even when, at this moment, he couldn't help but get, a jibe in at the damn computer nerds. And he said, you know, this thing about these software updates, you know, we really had to, it, it really took us a lot of like kind of cultural change to get used to putting out a product that wasn't perfect. Yeah. Because in the old, you know, in the way we, we, in the automotive engineering, we don't put out things that need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, first of all, to characterize a software update as just a fix of a problem, uh -huh, no, uh, you, you got to know that that's just not true. Right. Like, but what, what Tesla right. was doing was also introducing new features. And this is what would have blown their minds for free. Mm -hmm. um, because the whole the whole <laughs> legacy automotive industry has just put out the new thing, but with a new gizmo attached and say it's the 2010 mm -hmm. model. Uh, and right. you need it. You need to buy that. And and the idea also that like conventional automotive engineers would have never released a product with any deficiencies is yeah. just absolutely ludicrous. But I bring this all up because exactly. there is this there is this kind of like this kind of interesting cultural kind of like gear grinding between yeah. self publishing and publishers, where like you can imagine you can imagine a sort of development editor at at a conventional publishing business, and like all the people there saying like, you know. 
what's with this sort of whole lean pub type process where it's like you just you just you just put something out there and yeah. change it later if there's a problem yeah yeah that's, yeah. that's just not serious that'd be good um, no. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like I, I totally get it and it's a totally different way of doing things but the, the other side mm -hmm. of it is like but 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 bugs or or mistakes or do come through mm -hmm. or or for example yeah. one of the reasons lean pub exists is because you, if you if you publish a book the conventional way on an evolving technology, that technology mm -hmm. between the six months when you submit your final manuscript and the book finally comes out, something in that underlying technology might have changed, yeah. and your book yeah. might be obsolete before it comes out. So there are these right. like there are these very important reasons to do things the way that conventional publishers do a lot of things, mm -hmm. but there are also just there's just things there's just things that that process misses and can't accommodate, and one of the things right. it can't accommodate is a programmer who, who's written the book, who's accustomed to be able, be able to being able to change and deploy things when they find problems <laughs> or when they want to add something. And then they're told, no, you can't. And that can just be very frustrating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great that the, like Limpa really does something here uh, for this part. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's also, I think what, what programmers often call agility, we can change directions very quickly. Uh, if it feels like we're not doing something right here, uh, we can abandon the entire idea sometimes even and say, okay, we are going to write a different book or I allow myself to write a different book than I started out with. And, and <clears throat> well, it happened a, a lot of times uh, also with this book. In fact, um, uh, I was like, okay, it, it has to be recipes. I, I always start with this design um, sort of uh, uh, statement uh, to say it should be a 150 page book um, simple, uh, like short sections, um, just quick advice, basically, not too much explanations going on. Uh, and, and it's because that was with the architecture book, it, it, it was almost like a never ending thing. Much more had to be said and written, uh, and it could never be released in a, in a sense. Well, it, it is released, but okay, that took a lot of time. Uh, and for this time, I, I want to be, to be a bit faster, a bit more lean as well to, to get the things out there. Uh, and make sure that, um, yeah, we don't lose time with that. But sometimes it feels like, um, in, in particular with, with PHP Stan and, and Rector, which are, uh, I, think, I think, still quite new tools, that uh, we shouldn't wait that long uh, until they are like fully stable or something, although they are quite stable, but um, we, we don't have to wait until it's, um, it's like this, um, uh, like everybody already uses it. Uh, so I, I also want to push for the new things uh, and, and be sure that everybody knows about it. Um, so yeah, I wanted to, to be fast in a way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, <laughs> so that's this is the right place to, to do that kind of. Yeah, thing. no, that that's really interesting. That's and that's another reason um, that that sort of you know where 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 the, the one of the reasons Lean Pub exists and one of the reasons mm -hmm. that it is the way it is is that like um, you know you know we don't really get this question like we used to, but um, you know uh, someone might ask why would I want to read a book that's only twenty percent complete? It's like well right. because yeah. it's about a new technology and knowing twenty yeah. percent more than zero about it. Uh, it's, it's good. <laughs> Already um, very valuable. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, just on that note, but so, uh, you mentioned, but when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned you've actually built mm -hmm. your own kind of, uh, tools for, for writing in lean yeah. and, um, and, uh, you know, so you mentioned pre just now, like how you sort of go around with your design principle for the book and maybe, yeah. you know, summaries and, and outlines and stuff like that. So how does, what are the, what are the tool, what's the tool or tools that you've built to help with your, your book writing? Yeah, several things. In fact, um, uh, so one thing that uh, yeah I used to be very bothered uh, uh, with is that um, uh, or concerned about is that a book is is outdated very very quickly. Like with the Symphony book, I had to say 
Okay, I'm not going to update it. Uh, it's going to use Symphony three, but that's it. Uh, you know, they are at six now. So in a sense, it's it's a it's kind of wasteful that uh, well the book has been written and it has been useful for some people, but um, no longer it is. Uh, and so for for any new book that I I am writing, I want it to be like upgradable itself. So um, this means that um, yeah, I have to, to define all the dependencies that I need, uh, any kind of frameworks, including their versions or libraries or the language versions themselves. Um, and when I want to uh, migrate the book to a new language version or a new framework version, that should be like a very simple thing to do. Um, like I can just change the version, uh, regenerate the book basically, and yeah, see if anything breaks. Uh, so that was, was another thing that I wanted is that all the code samples should be working code. Uh, it's just very easy to just write a snippet of code. And yeah, like uh, the earlier books, they were like uh, reviewers would try the code and find out it doesn't work. Um, so that no longer is necessary. Like the, the book um, basically verifies its own correctness. Uh, so that is, I think, a very um, good addition for like um, making sure that the book is valuable, not just this year, but also in the next few years. Uh, eventually, of course, like the, the main manuscript itself could be outdated because it gives wrong advice or uh, things that no longer make sense um, because the world changes or something. But um, in the end, I think books can be can be more maintainable in the, in the long run like this. So to go, this is why the, the reason we leave this for the end of the interview. And there actually are some people who skip to the end just to hear this kind of stuff, but it's very, uh -huh. in, the, very in the weeds. So, um, so right. does that mean that the code samples in your your latest books are all in unique text files yeah exactly yeah in fact right. every um i usually write every example in different stages so we start with version zero which is uh, just like the way it would normally be written if it would maybe be in a normal project and it would follow framework documentation uh, then version one is a slightly improved version version two is like yeah. and so we iterate until i'm happy um, and yeah, sometimes it's like uh, I show what I would test and then like gradually add more tests uh, as well. So the book is, is, is actually test driven, uh, uh, developing in a test driven way. Um, but yeah, then, then every version is its own sub project. So installed with all of its own dependencies and, and just uh, some tests that show that the example is correct. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's super, it's super interesting just for anyone who's, who's interested maybe in writing their first Lean Pub book and it's a programming mm -hmm. book. Um, the way this, right. this would work is that it, your, your main, the kind of what you would think of as the normal book content, the paragraphs, mm -hmm. right? This will be in, say, yeah. in a text file and you write your paragraphs. And then yeah. the next, mm -hmm. the next after one paragraph, you might want to insert a code sample. And mm -hmm. the way one feature at Lean Pub has is you don't have to write it in that same text file. You can point mm -hmm. to another exactly. file that has yeah. the code in it. And because we've got that feature, Matthias has come up with this interesting way of, of right. since these, these, you've got these separate individual files that have just have unique bits of code in them, you can actually yeah. then run tests on those codes, on those, those files separately right. from analyzing the sort of book content uh, yeah. text. Exactly, and and you can decide uh, if the test should also be in the code or uh, like in the manuscript, right? Or if you want to keep them out of sight, but just for your own like checking correctness of of the code sample, uh, that could work as well. Oh, that's um, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and another thing that um, that I added is that uh, like you want to show different versions, but for the next version, you want to maybe exclude part of the part of the code that you have already explained something about. So uh, you want to have slash slash dot 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 like as comments um, uh, to say like, okay, I'm leaving this out here. 
Uh, and I created something for that as well. So you can say in the manuscript, which part should be included from uh, the, uh, the script, like that you want to show. Uh, but also inside the code itself, you can say skip from here and like uh, show the code from here again. <laughs> so it's like jump in and out of, of the code. Um, so and that has proven really uh, useful because the, um, the, usually if you leave out things from from a code sample, it becomes incorrect. Uh, and now it stays correct, but it doesn't show up on the on the book page itself. So that's quite that's, actually, uh, useful. That's yeah. super fascinating. We always like to say we have we have the best the best customers because our authors are programmed. <laughs> so many of our authors are programmers, and by best I mean you know, help let us be a little bit lazier than we otherwise might be, or uh -huh. or give us really good good indications of things we can do because they're creators of, of the technology, not just the, the books and right. the content themselves. Um, yeah, but I, I'm very very thankful as well because uh, it's with Markua that this is possible. There's a lot of um, uh, like the the. the I don't know how it, how it goes with Markua, by the way. Is, is it still like uh, like something you? Support oh yeah, no. Mar so Markua. So for for those listening, yeah. So um, mm -hmm. uh, for anyone listening, so there's this thing called Markdown, which is a way of, of sort of writing writing web content without having to type out all the HTTPS blah blah blah. So basically, it was like sort of um, shorthand formatting instructions that you would type in a plain text file um, mm -hmm. instead of having to type all the formatting instructions out. And so it, it, um, uh, my co-founder Peter created this thing called Markua, which is basically Markdown, but for books. So the idea is that you can you 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 specify all of the different formatting instructions that you might need to type into a plain text file to have a book, a mm -hmm. properly formatted book, come out of it. Um, and so Markua is fully specified, um, uh, but it is not fully implemented on LeanPub yet. Um, and we're hoping to have it, I mean, we've been saying this for literally years, but we're hoping to have it fully implemented sometime soon. Um, right. yeah. But yeah, it is, it is fully specified and it's just, we're, you know, just beavering away, uh, mm -hmm. trying, trying to get it all fully implemented. And um, uh, so if you, if you create a LeanPub book, it's automatically in Markua 0 0.10 version uh, right now. But hopefully we're going to get to version 0 0.30, which will be, you know, when it's, when it's done, that'll be the sort of first example of a full imp implementation of it where you'll be able to do basically everything mm -hmm. everything you can imagine you want to be able to do if you're producing a book you can write those right. instructions in plain text and then lean pubs book generators will know what to do yeah, exactly yeah it's always this discussion about like should, should we have yet another language to do this right because the, there are alternatives of course uh, but so far i think like marco is quite close to markdown uh, and markdown is very familiar for, for most developers i think uh, so it's just a very easy thing to get into Yet, yeah, you get all these extra things that are re related to book writing. Oh yeah, that's as yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, like given the fact that you've been around for so long, Meepub, um, you'll know what I mean. But like, you know, it was it was kind of a bet that 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 Peter Armstrong, my co-founder, took you know on on Markdown, right? Is this yeah? Because there are there are lots of different ways of doing doing the same thing for everything, right? And um, and yeah, it's it's interesting because programmers, of course, are familiar with with Markdown and stuff like that. But more and more people nowadays are, are who aren't programmers per se. Are actually mm -hmm. getting getting used to writing in Markdown, um, yeah. just partly because um, you know you know if, if you're getting into things like data science or something like that, you know they, these kinds of things can become more familiar. And mm -hmm. also writing writing in plain text is something that people are becoming more more familiar mm -hmm. with as well as opposed as opposed to in Word or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 interesting. And yeah, and you know of course you know yeah there are, there are other options, but um, you know ours ours is the best. Um, uh, with that exactly. with that being said, with that being said, um, uh, well, and it's, it's I would say I would venture to say that it is the best, and it's partly the best because I mean if you can imagine 
the being able to interact with authors like like you with your level of sort of dedication and experience and you know technical sophistication over over the course of 10 years you're going to have a different product than you would with a different you know sort of uh form of evolution um but right. with that with but with that said um the last question we always ask on the podcast now um if the guest is a lean pub author is if there was one terribly awful broken thing with lean pub that frustrates you to no end that we could fix for uh -huh. you <laughs> or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, uh, mm -hmm. what can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Ah, that, that's funny. Yeah. Um, well, uh, it has been fixed. I think uh, it was the, the the problem where, like, for for technical books, you always have these like mono uh, font, or I, I don't know what the right word is, but like code samples in the the, the text, like in a paragraph, and it, it wouldn't break uh, for, onto the next line or like. There was some word wrapping issue there uh, because it's really hard to say where to wrap or like break the word. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, last time I checked, it was really great, and and it was just uh, breaking them those words as well. Oh, are you are you talking about how things would spill over into the margin? Right. Yeah, I, I don't know what the word for that is, but uh, yeah, that, that this would happen a lot of times where like the margin would just contain a bit of code, and it's like okay, yeah, it's not. not yeah, nice. yeah. I, I don't I don't know the technical details, but like we we did yeah. we did I'm putting in quotes finally, but actually I shouldn't put it quote. We did right. finally fix that uh, a while exactly. ago, yeah. and so it's much much more <laughs> rare now than it than it yeah. used to be. Um, but yeah, yes, we our authors patiently patiently lived with us for quite some time before we solved that problem. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's very cool, and I mean, um, yeah, I, I always try to use like all uh, all of the power features. So I also have a have a command line tool where I can say publish a new version or give me a preview of the of the um, uh, the book, and yeah. Oh yeah, you're using you're using our API. We have an API for exactly. people who who don't want to have to go onto the onto some boring website like leanpub.com and click buttons. Instead, you can just sort of right. generate previews. Uh, from, yeah. from your from your computer. Uh, well, Matthias, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. And and uh, you know, again, um, <laughs> so many years later. And and thanks very much for sticking around with us all this time. Yeah, thank you for offering this awesome platform. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.